Part 2, Chapter 2, Section 3 of No More Parades. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Peter Dan. Part 2, Chapter 2, Section 3. It was difficult for Sylvia to get hold of her thoughts in the smoking-room, for the evening was entirely pervaded with military effects that seemed to her the pranks of schoolboys. Indeed, after Cowley, who had by now quite a good skinful of liquor, had said to Teachens, By Jove, I would not like to be you and a little bit on if old Blazers caught sight of you tonight. She said to Teachens, with real wonder, You don't mean to say that a gaga old fool like that could have any possible influence over you. You? Teachens said, Well, it's a troublesome business, all this. She said that it so appeared to be, for before he could finish his sentence, an orderly was at his elbow, extending, along with a pencil, a number of dilapidated papers. Teachens looked rapidly through them, signing one after the other, and saying intermittently, It's a trying time. We're massing troops up the line as fast as we can go, and with an endlessly changing personnel. He gave a snort of exasperation and said to Callie, That horrible little Pitkins has got a job as bombing instructor. He can't march the draft. Who the deuce am I to detail? Who the deuce is there? You know all the little... He stopped because the orderly could hear. A smart boy, almost the only smart boy, left him. Cowley barged out of his seat and said he would telephone the mess to see who was there. Teachin said to the boy, Sergeant Major Morgan made out these returns of religions in the draft. The boy answered, No, sir, I did. They're all right. He pulled a slip of paper out of his tunic pocket and said shyly, if you would not mind signing this, sir, I can get a lift on an ASC trolley that's going to Bologna tomorrow at six. Teachin said, No, you can't have leave. I can't spare you. What's it for? The boy said almost inaudibly that he wanted to get married. Teachin, still signing, said, Don't. Ask your married pals what it's like. The boy, scarlet in his khaki, rubbed the sole of one foot on the instep of the other. He said that saving Madame's presence, it was urgent. It was expected any day now. She was a real good gal. Teachin signed the boy's slip and handed it to him without looking up. The boy stood with his eyes on the ground. A diversion came from the telephone, which was at the far end of the room. Callie had not been able to get on to the camp because an urgent message with regard to German espionage was coming through to the sleeping general. Cowley began to shout, For goodness sake, hold the line! For goodness sake, hold the line! I'm not the general! I'm not the general. Teachens told the orderly to awaken the sleeping warrior. A violent scene at the mouth of the quiescent instrument took place. The general roared to know who was the officer speaking. Captain Bubbly Jocks, Captain Cuddlestocks, what in hell's name? And who was he speaking for? Who? Himself? Urgent, was it? Didn't he know the proper procedure was by writing? Urgent damnation. Did he not know where he was? In the First Army, by the Cassell Canal. Well, then. But the spy was in LFC territory across the canal. The French civilian authorities were very concerned. They were, damn them. And damn the officer. And damn the French mayor. And damn the horse the supposed spy rode upon. And when the officer was damned, let him write to First Army headquarters about it and attach the horse and the bandoliers as an exhibit. There was a great deal more of it. Teachens, reading his papers still, intermittently explained the story as it came in fragments over the telephone in the general's repetitions. 
Apparently, the French civilian authorities of a place called Warendonk had been alarmed by a solitary horseman in English uniform who had been wandering desultorily about their neighbourhood for several days, seeming to want to cross the canal bridges but finding them guarded. There was an immense artillery dump in the neighbourhood, said to be the largest in the world, and the Germans dropped bombs as thick as peas all over those parts in the hopes of hitting it. Apparently the officer speaking was in charge of the canal bridgehead guards, but as he was in First Army country it was obviously an act of the utmost impropriety to awaken the general in charge of the spy-catching apparatus on the other side of the canal. The general, returning past them to an armchair farther from the telephone, emphasised this point of view with great vigour. The orderly had returned. Cowley went once more to the telephone, having consumed another liqueur brandy. Teachens finished his papers and went through them rapidly again. He said to the boy, "'Got anything saved up?' The boy said, "'A fiver and a few bob.' Teachens said, "'How many bob?' The boy said, Seven, sir.' Teachens, fumbling clumsily in an inner pocket and a little pocket beneath his belt, held out one leg of mutton fist and said, "'There, that'll double it. Ten pounds fourteen. "'But it's very improvident of you. "'See that you save up a deuced lot more against the next one. "'Accouchement are confoundedly expensive things, as you'll learn, "'and ring money doesn't stretch forever.' "'He called out to the retreating boy, "'Here, orderly, come back.' He added, don't let it get all over camp. I can't afford to subsidise all the seven-month's children in the battalion. I recommend you for paid Lance Corporal when you return from leave if you go on as well as you have done. He called the boy back again to ask him why Captain McKechnie had not signed the papers. The boy stuttered and stammered that Captain McKechnie was... He was... Teachens muttered, good God, beneath his breath. He said, the captain has had another nervous breakdown... The orderly accepted the phrase with gratitude. That was it. A nervous breakdown. They say he had been very queer at mass, about divorce, or the captain's uncle. A barrow night, Teachin said. Yes, yes. He half rose in his chair and looked at Sylvia. She exclaimed painfully, You can't go. I insist that you can't go. He sat down again and muttered wearily that it was very worrying. He had been put in charge of this officer by General Campion. He ought not to have left the camp at all, perhaps, but McKechnie had seemed better. A great deal of the calmness of her insolence had left her. She had expected to have the whole night in which luxuriously to torment the lump opposite her, to torment and to allure him. She said, You have settlements to come to now and here that will affect your whole life, our whole lives. You propose to abandon them because a miserable little nephew of your miserable little friend... She added in French, even as it is you cannot pay attention to these serious matters because of these childish preoccupations of yours. That is to be intolerably insulting to me. She was breathless. Teachens asked the orderly where Captain McKechnie was now. The orderly said he had left the camp. The colonel of the depot had sent a couple of officers as a search party. Teachens told the orderly to go and find a taxi. He could have a ride himself up to camp. The orderly said taxis would not be running on account of the air raid. Could he order the GMP to requisition one on urgent military service? The exhilarated air gun pooped off thereupon three times from the garden. For the next hour it sent off every two or three minutes. Teachin said, yes, yes, to the orderly. The noises of the air raid became more formidable. A blue express letter of French civilian make was handed to Teachin's. 
It was from the Duchess to inform him that coal for the use of greenhouses was forbidden by the French government. She did not need to say that she relied on his honour to ensure her receiving her coal through the British military authorities, and she asked for an immediate reply. Tijins expressed real annoyance while he read this. Distracted by the noise, Sylvia cried out that the letter must be from Valentine Wannup in Rouen. Did not the girl intend to let him have an hour in which to settle the whole business of his life? Tijins moved to the chair next to hers. He handed her the Duchess's letter. He began a long, slow, serious explanation with a long, slow, serious apology. He said he regretted very much that when she should have taken the trouble to come so far in order to do him the honour to consult him about a matter which she would have been perfectly at liberty to settle for herself, the extremely serious military position should render him so liable to interruption. As far as he was concerned, Groby was entirely at her disposal with all that it contained and, of course, a sufficient income for the upkeep. She exclaimed in an access of sudden and complete despair, That means that you do not intend to live there. He said that that must settle itself later. The war would no doubt last a good deal longer. While it lasted, there could be no question of his coming back. She said that that meant that he intended to get killed. She warned him that if he got killed, she would cut down the great cedar at the southwest corner of Groby, it kept all the light out of the principal drawing-room and the bedrooms above it. He winced. He certainly winced at that. She regretted that she had said it. It was along other lines that she desired to make him wince. He said that apart from his having no intention of getting himself killed, the matter was absolutely out of his hands. He had to go where he was ordered to go and do what he was told to do. She exclaimed, "'You!' You, isn't it ignoble that you should be at the beck and call of these ignoramuses, you? He went on explaining seriously that he was in no great danger, in no danger at all unless he was sent back to his battalion. And he was not likely to be sent back to his battalion unless he disgraced himself or showed himself negligent where he was. That was unlikely. Besides, his category was so low that he was not eligible for his battalion, which, of course, was in the line. She ought to understand that everyone that she saw employed there was physically unfit for the line. She said, that's why there's such an awful lot. It is not to this place that one should come to look for a presentable man. Diogenes with his lantern was nothing to it. He said, there's that way of looking at it. It is quite true that most of, let's say, your friends were killed off during the early days, or if they're still going, they're in more active employments. What she called presentableness was very largely a matter of physical fitness. The horse, for instance, that he rode was rather a crock, but though it was German and not thoroughbred, it contrived to be up to his weight. Her friends, more or less, of before the war were professional soldiers or of the type. Well, they were gone, dead or snowed under. But on the other hand, this vast town full of crocks did keep the thing going if it could be made to go. It was not they that hindered the show. If it was hindered, that was done by her much less presentable friends, the Ministry, who, if they were professionals at all, were professional booglers. She exclaimed with bitterness, Then why didn't you stay at home to check them if they are booglers? She added that the only people at home who kept social matters going at all with any life were precisely the more successful political professionals. When you were with them, you would not know there was any war. And wasn't that what was wanted? Was the whole of life to be given up to ignoble horseplay? 
she spoke with increased rancor because of the increasing thump and rumble of the air raid. Of course the politicians were ignoble beings that, before the war, you would not have thought of having in your house. But whose fault was that, if not that of the better classes, who had gone away, leaving England a dreary wilderness of fellows without conscience or traditions or manners? And she added some details of the habits at a country house of a member of the government whom she disliked. And, she finished up, it's your fault. Why aren't you Lord Chancellor or Chancellor of the Exchequer instead of whoever is, for I'm sure I don't know. You could have been with your abilities and your interests. Then things would have been efficiently and honestly conducted. If your brother Mark, with not a tithe of your abilities, can be a permanent head of a department, what could you not have risen to with your gifts and your influence and your integrity? And she ended up, oh, Christopher, almost on a sob. Ex-Sergeant Major Cowley, who had come back from the telephone and, during an interval in the thunderings, had heard some of Sylvia's light cast on the habits of members of the home government, so that his jaw had really hung down, now, in another interval, exclaimed, "'Here, here, madam, there is nothing the captain might not have risen to. He is doing the work of a brigadier now on the pay of an acting captain, and the treatment he gets is scandalous.' Well, the treatment we all get is scandalous, tricked and defrauded as we are, all at every turn. And look at this new start with the draft. They had ordered the draft to be ready and countermanded it, and ordered it to be ready and countermanded it, until no one knew whether he stood on his head or his heels. It was to have gone off last night. When they had it marched down to the station, they had it marched back, and told them all it would not be wanted for six weeks. Now it was to be got ready to go before daylight tomorrow morning in motor lorries to the rail on Dakota Way, the rail here having been sabotaged, before daylight so that the enemy aeroplane should not see it on the road. Wasn't that a thing, to break the arts of men in orderly rooms? It was outrageous. Did they suppose the Uns did things like that? He broke off to say with husky enthusiasm of affection to teachers, Look here, old, I mean, sir, there's no way of getting old of an officer to march the draft. Them as are eligible gets to hear of what draft is going, and they've all bolted into their burries. Not a man of them will be back in camp before five tomorrow morning. Not when they hears there's a draft to go at four in the morning like this. Now, his voice became husky with emotion as he offered to take the draft himself to oblige Captain Teachens. And the captain knew he could get a draft off pretty near as good as himself, or very near. As for the draft-conducting major, he lived in that hotel, and he, Cowley, had seen him. No four in the morning for him, he was going to motor to Ondakota Station about seven. So there was no sense in getting the draft off before five, and it was still dark then, too dark for the unplanes to see what was moving. He'd be glad if the captain would be up at the camp by five to take a final look and to sign any papers that only the commanding officer could sign. But he knew the captain had had no sleep the night before, because of his, Cowley's infirmity mostly, so he couldn't do less than give up a day and a half of his leave to taking the draft. Besides, he was going home for the duration, and he would not mind getting a look at the old places they'd seen in 14 for the last time as a Cox tourist. Teachens, who was looking noticeably white, said, Do you remember 09 Morgan at Noircourt? Cowley said, No. Was he there? In your company, I suppose. The man you mean that was killed yesterday? Died in your arms owing to my oversight. I ought to have been there. 
He said to Sylvia with the gloating idea NCOs had that wives liked to hear of their husbands' near escapes, killed within a foot of the captain he was. An horrible shock it must have been for the captain. A horrible mess. The captain held him in his arms while he died, as if he'd been a baby. Wonderful tender the captain was. Well, you're apt to be when it's one of your own men. No rank then. Do you know the only time the king must salute a private soldier and the private takes no notice? When he's dead. Both Sylvia and Teachens were silent and silvery white in the greenish light from the lamp. Teachens indeed had shut his eyes. The old NCO went on rejoicing to have the floor to himself. He had got on his feet preparatory to going up to camp and he swayed a little. No, he said, and he waved his cigar gloriously. I don't remember O'Nine Morgan at Noircourt. But I remember, Teachens with his eyes still shut said, I only thought he might have been a man. No, the old fellow went on imperiously. I don't remember him. But, Lord, I remember what happened to you. He looked down gloriously upon Sylvia. The captain caught his foot in. You'd never believe what he caught his foot in. Never. A pretty quiet affair it was with a bit of moonlight. Nothing much in the way of artillery. Perhaps we surprised the uns proper. Perhaps they were wanting to give up their front-line trenches for a purpose. There was next to no one in them. I know it made me nervous. My art was fair in my boots because there was so little doing. It was when there was little doing that the uns could be expected to do their worst. Of course there was some machine gunning. There was one in particular away to the right of us and the moon it was shining in the early morning. Wonderful peaceful and a little mist and frozen hard. Hard as you wouldn't believe. Enough to make the shells dangerous. Sylvia said, It's not always mud then and teachings to her. He'll stop if you don't like it. She said monotonously, No, I want to hear. Carly drew himself up for his considerable effect. Mud, he said, not then, not by half. I tell you, ma'am, we trod on the frozen faces of dead Germans as we doubled. A terrible lot of Germans we'd killed a day or so before. That was no doubt the reason they give up the trenches so easy. Difficult to attack from, they was. Anyhow, they left the dead for us to bury, knowing probably they were going with a better art. But it fair put the wind up me, anyhow, to think of what their counter-attack was going to be. The counter-attack is always ten times as bad as the preliminary resistance. They as you with the rear of their trenches, the paradise, we call it, as your front to boot. So I was precious glad when the moppers up and supports came and went through us, laughing they was, Wiltshire's. My missus comes from that country. Mrs Cowley, I mean. So I'd seen the captain go down earlier on and I'd said, there's another of the best stopped one. He dropped his voice a little. He was one of the noted yarners of the regiment. Got his foot, he had, between two hands, sticking up out of the frozen ground as it might be in prayer, like this. He elevated his two hands, the cigar between the fingers, the wrists close together and the fingers slightly curled inward, sticking up in the moonlight. Poor devil. Tichin said, I thought perhaps it was O'Nine Morgan I saw that night. Naturally I looked dead. I hadn't a breath in my body, and I saw a Tommy put his rifle to his pal's upper arm and fire as I lay on the ground. Cowley said, Ah, you saw that. I heard the men talking of it, but they naturally did not say who and where. Teachin said with a negligence that did not ring true. 
The wounded man's name was Stilico. A queer name. I suppose it's Cornish. It was B Company in front of us. You didn't bring him to a court-martial? Cowley asked. Teachin said no. He could not be quite certain. Though he was certain. But he had been worrying about a private matter. He had been worrying about it while he lay on the ground and that rather obscured his sense of what he saw. Besides, he said faintly, an officer must use his judgment. He had judged it better in this case not to have seen the... His voice had nearly faded away. It was clear to Sylvia that he was coming to a climax of some mental torture. Suddenly he exclaimed to Cowley, Supposing I let him off one life to get him killed two years after. My God, that would be too beastly. Cowley snuffled in Teachin's ear something that Sylvia did not catch, consolatory and affectionate. That intimacy was more than she could bear. She adopted her most negligent tone to ask, I suppose the one man had been trifling with the other's girl or wife. Cowley exploded. God bless you, no, they'd agreed upon it between them to get one of them sent home and the other at any rate out of that hell, leading him back to the dressing station. She said, You mean to say that a man would do that to get out of it? Cowley said, God bless you, ma'am, with the hell the Tommies has of it, for it's in the line that the difference between the other ranks' life and the officers' comes in. I tell you, ma'am, old soldier as I am, and I've been in seven years one with another, there were times in this war when I could have shrieked holding my right hand down. He paused and said, It was my idea, and it's been a good many others, that if I held my hand up over the parapet with perhaps me hat on it, in two minutes there would be a German sharpshooter's bullet through it, and then me for blighty, as the soldiers say. And if that could happen to me, a regimental sergeant major with twenty-three years in the service. The bright orderly came in, said he found a taxi and melted into the dimness. A man, the sergeant major said, would take the risk of being shot for wounding his pal. They get to love their pals, passing the love of women. Sylvia exclaimed, Oh, as if at a pang of toothache. They do, ma'am, he said, it's downright touching. He was, by now, very unsteady as he stood, but his voice was quite clear. That was the way it took him. He said to Teachins, It's queer what they say about home worries, taking up your mind. I remember in the Afghan campaign, when we were in the devil of a hot corner, I got a letter from my wife, Mrs Cowley, to say that our Winnie had the measles, and there was only one difference between me and Mrs Cowley. I said that a child must have flannel next to its skin, and she said flannelette was good enough. Well, she doesn't hold by wool as Lincolnshire does. Long fleeces the Lincolnshire sheep have, and dodging the Afghan bullets all day among the boulders as we was, all I could think of, for you know, ma'am, being a mother yourself, that the great thing with measles is to keep a child warm. I kept saying to myself, half crying I was, if she only keeps wool next Winnie's skin, if she only keeps wool next Winnie's skin. But you know that, being a mother yourself. I've seen your son's photo on the captain's dressing table. Michael, his name is. So you see, the captain doesn't forget you and him. Sylvia said in a clear voice, Perhaps you would not go on. Distracted as she was by the anti-air gun in the garden, though it was on the other side of the hotel and permitted you to get in a sentence or two before splitting your head with a couple of irregular explosions, she was still more distracted by a sudden vision, 
a remembrance of Christopher's face when their boy had had a temperature of 105 degrees with the measles up at his sister's house in Yorkshire. He had taken the responsibility, which the village doctor would not face, of himself placing the child in a bath full of split ice. She saw him bending, expressionless in the strong lamplight, with the child in his clumsy arms over the glittering, rubbled surface of the bath. He was just as expressionless then as now. He reminded her now of how he had been then, some strain in the lines of the face, perhaps, that she could not analyse, rather as if he had a cold in the head, a little suffocating with suppressing his emotions, of course his eyes looking at nothing. You would not have said that he even saw the child, heir to Groby and all that. Something had said to her, just in between two crashes of the gun, it's his own child. He went, as you might say, down to hell to bring it back to life. She knew it was Father Consett saying that. She knew it was true. Christopher had been down to hell to bring the child back. Fancy facing its pain in that dreadful bath. The thermometer had dropped, running down under their eyes. Christopher had said, A good heart he's got, a good plucked one, and then held his breath, watching the thin filament of bright mercury drop to normal. She said now between her teeth, the child is his property as much as the damned estate. Well, I've got them both. But it wasn't at this juncture that she wanted him tortured over that. So, when the second gun had done its crash, she had said to the bibulous old man, I wish it would not go on. And Christopher had been prompt to the rescue of the convenances, with Mrs. Teachins does not see eye to eye with us in some matters. She said to herself, eye to eye, my God. The whole of this affair, the more she saw of it, overwhelmed her with a sense of hatred and of depression. She saw Christopher buried in this welter of fools, playing a schoolboy's game of make-believe, but of a make-believe that was infinitely formidable and infinitely sinister. The crashing of the gun and of all the instruments for making noise seemed to her so atrocious and odious because they were, for her, the silly pomp of a schoolboy man's game. Campion or some similar schoolboy said, Hello, some German airplane's about. That lets us out on the air gun. Let's have some pops. As they fire guns in the park on the king's birthday. It was sheer insolence to have a gun in the garden of an hotel where people of quality might be sleeping or wishing to converse. At home she had been able to sustain the conviction that it was such a game. Anywhere, at the house of a minister of the crown, at dinner, she had only to say, do let us leave off talking of these odious things, and immediately there would be ten or a dozen voices, the ministers included, to agree with Mrs. Teachins of Groby that they had altogether too much of it. But here, she seemed to be in the very belly of the ugly affair. It moved and moved under your eyes, dissolving, yet always there, as if you should try to follow one diamond of pattern in the coil of an immense snake that was in irrevocable motion. It gave her a sense of despair, the engrossment of Teachens in common with the engrossment of this disreputable toper. She had never seen Teachens put his head together with any soul before. He was the lonely buffalo. Now anyone, any fatuous staff officer, whom at home he would never so much as have spoken to, any trustworthy beer-sodden sergeant, any street urchin dressed up as an orderly, 
They had only to appear, and all his mind went into a close-headed conference over some ignoble point in the child's game, the laundry, the chiropody, the religions, the bastards, of millions of indistinguishable, of their deaths as well. But in heaven's name, what hypocrisy or what inconceivable chicken-heartedness was this? They promoted this bean-fest of carnage for their own ends. They caused the deaths of men as inconceivable holocausts of pain and terror, then they had crises of agony over the death of one single man. For it was plain to her that Teachens was in the middle of a full nervous breakdown over one man's death. She had never seen him so suffer. She had never seen him so appeal for sympathy. Him, a cold fiend of reticence. Yet he was now in an agony. Now. And she began to have a sense of the infinitely spreading welter of pain going away to an eternal horizon of night. Hell for the other ranks. Apparently it was hell for the officers as well. The real compassion in the voice of that snuffling, half-drunken old man had given her a sense of that enormous wickedness, these horrors, these infinities of pain, this atrocious condition of the world, had been brought about in order that men should indulge themselves in orgies of promiscuity. That, in the end, was at the bottom of male honour, of male virtue, observance of treaties, upholding of the flag, an immense warlock's carnival of appetites, lusts, ebrieties, and once set in motion there was no stopping it. This state of things would never cease, because once they had tasted of the joy, the blood of this game, who would let it end? These men talked of these things that occupied them there with the lust of men telling dirty stories in smoking rooms. That was the only parallel. There was no stopping it, any more than there was any stopping the by now all but intoxicated ex-sergeant major. He was off with, as might be expected, advice to a young couple with differences of opinion. The wine had made him bold. In the depth of her pictures of these horrors, snatches of his wisdom penetrated to her intelligence. Queer snatches. She was getting it certainly in the neck. Someone, to add to the noise, had started some mechanical musical instrument in an adjacent hall. Corn and lasses, served by rasses, a throaty voice proclaimed. I'd be tickled to death to know that I could go and stay right there. The ex-Sergeant Major was adding to her knowledge the odd detail that when he, Sergeant Major Cowley, went to the wars, seven of them, his missus, Mrs Cowley, spent the first three days and nights unpicking and re-hemstitching every sheet and pillow slip in the house to keep herself from thinking. This was apparently meant as a reproof or an exhortation to her Sylvia Teachens. Well, he was all right, of the same class as Father Concert and with the same sort of wisdom. The gramophone howled. A new note of rumbling added itself to the exterior tumult and continued through six mitigated thumps of the gun in the garden. In the next interval, Cowley was in the midst of a valedictory address to her. He was asking her to remember that the captain had had a sleepless night the night before. There occurred to her irreverent mind a sentence of one of the Duchess of Marlborough's letters to Queen Anne. The Duchess had visited the General during one of his campaigns in Flanders. My Lord, she wrote, did me the honour three times in his boots. The sort of thing she would remember. She would. She would have tried it on the Sergeant Major just to see Teachin's face, for the Sergeant Major would not have understood, and who cared if he did? 
He was bibulously skirting round the same idea. But the tumult increased to an incredible volume. Even the thrillings of the nearby gramophone of 200 horsepower, or whatever it was, became mere shimmerings of a gold thread in a drab fabric of sound. She screamed blasphemies that she was hardly aware of knowing. She had to scream against the noise. She was no more responsible for the blasphemy than if she had lost her identity under an anaesthetic. She had lost her identity. She was one of this crowd. The general woke in his chair and gazed malevolently at their group as if they alone were responsible for the noise. It dropped. Dead. You only knew it because you caught the tail end of a belated woman's scream from the hall and the general shouting... For God's sake, don't start that damned gramophone again. In the blessed silence, after preliminary wheezes and guitar noises, an astonishing voice burst out, Less than the dust before thy char. And then, stopping after a murmur of voices, began, Pale hands I loved. The general sprang from his chair and rushed to the hall. He came back crestfallenly. It's some damned civilian bigwig, a novelist, they say. I can't stop him. He added with disgust, the hall's full of young beasts and harlots, dancing. The melody had indeed, after a buzz, changed to a languorous and interrupted variation of a waltz, dancing in the dark, the general said with enhanced disgust, and the Germans may be here at any moment, if they knew what I know. Sylvia called across to him, wouldn't it be fun to see the blue uniform with the silver buttons again and some decently set-up men? The general shouted, I'd be glad to see them. I'm sick to death of these. Teachens took up something he'd been saying to Cowley. What it was, Sylvia did not hear, but Cowley answered, still droning on, with an idea Sylvia thought they had got past. I remember when I was a sergeant in Ketter, I detailed a man called Erring for watering the company horses after he begged off it because he had a fear of horses. A horse got him down in the river and drowned him fell with him and put its foot on his face. A fair sight he was. There wasn't any good my saying anything about military exigencies. Fair put me off me feed, it did. Cost me a fortune and Epsom salts. Sylvia was about to scream out that if Teachens did not like men being killed, it ought to sober him in his war lust. But Cowley continued meditatively. Epsom salts, they say, is the cure for it, for seeing you're dead. And of course you should keep off women for a fortnight. I know I did. Kept seeing Erring's face with the oof mark. And there was a piece, a decent bit of goods in what we call the government compound. He suddenly exclaimed, Saving you, ma'am, I'm... He stuck the stump of the cigar into his mouth and began assuring Teachens that he could be trusted with the draft next morning if only Teachens would put him into the taxi. He went away, leaning on Teachin's arm, his legs at an angle of sixty degrees with the carpet. He can't, Sylvia said to herself, he can't not, if he's a gentleman. After all that old fellow's hints, he'd be a damned coward if he kept off for a fortnight. And who else is there, not a public? She said, oh, God. The old general, lying in his chair, turned his face aside to say, I wouldn't, madam, not if I were you, talk about the blue uniform with silver buttons here. We, of course, understand. She said, you see, even that extinct volcano, he's undressing me with his eyes full of blood veins. Then why can't he? She said aloud, oh, but even you, general, said you were sick of your companions. She said to herself, 
Hang it, I will have the courage of my convictions. No man shall say I am a coward. She said, Isn't it saying the same thing as you, General, to say that I'd rather be made love to by a well-set-up man in blue and silver, or anything else, than by most of the people one sees here? The General said, Of course, if you put it that way, Madam. She said, What other way should a woman put it? She reached to the table and filled herself a lot of brandy. The old general was leering towards her. Bless me, he said, a lady who takes liquor like that. She said, you're a papist, aren't you, with the name of O'Hara and the touch of the brogue you have, and the devil you no doubt are with. You know what? Well then, it's with a special intention, as you say your hail marks. The liquor burning in sight as she saw Teachin's loom in the dim light. The general, to her bitter amusement, said to him, your friend was a bit more than a bit on, not the society, surely, for madam. Teachin said, I never expected to have the pleasure of dining with Mrs. Teachin's tonight. That officer was celebrating his commission and I could not put him off. The general said, Oh, ah, of course not, I dare say, and settled himself again in his chair. Teachin's was overwhelming her with his great bulk. She had still lost her breath. He stooped over and said, it was the luck of the half-drunk. He said, they're dancing in the lounge. She coiled herself passionately into her wicker work. It had dull blue cushions. She said, not with anyone else. I don't want any introductions. Fiercely. He said, there's no one there that I could introduce you to. She said, not if it's a charity. He said, I thought it might be rather dull. It's six months since I danced. She felt beauty flowing over all her limbs. She had a gown of gold tissue. Her matchless hair was coiled over her ears. She was humming Venusberg music. She knew music if she knew nothing else. She said, you call the compounds where you keep the wax Venusbergs, don't you? Isn't it queer that Venus should be your own? Think of poor Elizabeth. The room where they were dancing was very dark. It was queer to be in his arms. She had known better dancers. He had looked ill. Perhaps he was. Oh, poor Valentine Elizabeth. What a funny position. The good gramophone played. Destiny. You see, father, in his arms. Of course, dancing is not really. But so near the real thing. So near. Good luck to the special intention. She had almost kissed him on the lips, all but. Efflere, the French call it. But she was not as humble he had pressed her tighter. All these months without. My lord did me the honour. Good for Malbrook, son va He knew she had almost kissed him on the lips, and that his lips had almost responded. The civilian, the novelist, had turned out the last light. Teachin said, hadn't we better talk? She said, in my room then, I'm dog-tired. I haven't slept for six nights, in spite of drugs. He said, yes, of course, where else? astonishingly. Her gown of gold tissue was like the colobium syndonis the king wore at the coronation. As they mounted the stairs, she thought what a fat tenor Tannhauser always was. The Venusberg music was dinning in her ears. She said, Sixty-six inexpressibles. I'm as sober as a judge. I need to be. End of part two, chapter two, section three.